Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Anger of Beaumont podcast, where we love God and we love people. I'm so excited to bring this message to you today, but before we get started, I want to say two things. First, I hope you all are doing well during this difficult time. And second, please rate this podcast and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening from. It really means a lot for us. The reason why we ask is because it lets the podcast become ranked and exposes more people to it so we can bring the message to them. Okay, so with that out of the way, in this episode, Pastor Green plows the field with this message titled, I am holy. Following last week's message, I am separate, he gets into the essence of holiness. And no matter what we do, we cannot obtain true holiness ourselves. Outside of confessing our sins and entering into a personal relationship with Christ, there is not a single thing that we can do that will bring us to holiness. This is the entire purpose of Christ, to depend on him. Jesus is the only one who embodies true holiness, true inherent holiness, so that we must require him to obtain holiness through him. Pastor discusses obtaining holiness is not the way to Jesus, but rather Jesus is the way to holiness, as he is the only one who has holiness. We define what holiness actually is in the Hebrew and the Greek definitions, and we also define the absence of holiness. Now, before we get started, I would like to encourage you, the listener, to take a moment to pray before listening to this message. Prepare your heart to receive the word and pray that your ears will hear God's voice. Pray that your mind be open to understanding. Pause. Come back in 13 seconds, 45 seconds, maybe three minutes or even eight minutes, however long that takes you. All right, so now that you're back, let's get into it. Enjoy the message. Those that join us today, thank you very, very much. Uh, Let's see how we start today. Last Sunday, we started rough. Well, hopefully, we'll just kind of start a little easier than last Sunday. I will say that I left last Sunday. I I felt very ill uh, when I left last Sunday. Um, just that sickening feeling, uh, just as sometimes as a, as a preacher that you feel like you communicated the message well, and there's other times you feel like, man, maybe I didn't communicate that worth a flip, and hopefully, hopefully my frailty, my humanity did not hinder the message being communicated, um, and so once again, uh, and I know many of you sent me texts and emails and posted things on social media, and I appreciate that concerning the message last week, because I preached about I am separate, I am separate, and that message was about being, the gist of that message was about being separate from the mindset, the mindset of our society, the mindset of our society. We are called to be, to be, to be separate, and then today I'm going to be talking about holiness today. I am holy. And I would like to take your attention to the book of Ephesians, chapter number 4, Ephesians 4, verse number 17. And we're going to put it on the screen, and you can remain seated, that's fine. And it says this, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. And this is how, how it happens. 
It happens because of the blindness of their heart. The blindness of their heart. I, I just want to pause and just for a moment and, and make this statement before I continue reading this passage. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, that Paul tells the church, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm going to tell this congregation, follow me as I follow Christ. If I quit following Christ, if I get out, get out of the book, then so be it. Don't follow me. But as long as I'm in the book, follow me as I follow Christ. That's, that's the command of Scripture. That's the command of a pastor or, or the saint to the pastor. A pastor is to be the shepherd of your, your soul. And I know it's easy. It's easy in this generation. Well, that's not my flair of Pentecostal or that's not my flair of church. So let me go down to this, this church down the road. And, and we end up picking and choosing, picking and choosing. And, and really, we're not following the pastor as he follows Christ. We're really following our own desires. That's... That's what we're doing when, when we do that. Um, I think it's in Hebrews chapter, oh, chapter number 12, I believe it is, where, where the writer in Hebrews says, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The only two places that we're commanded to look that I found in Scripture is, is to look, is, both is looking up, is looking, uh, follow me as I follow Christ, and it's also looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What I've discovered is when people begin to look around, they begin to look at other people. They begin to look at how other pe- what other people are doing or, or how they're living their life or what, what's going on. Either direction, you know, well, I can't, I can't do what they're doing because I don't, I don't feel like I'm good enough to reach that status or, or, um, or look what they're doing. They shouldn't be doing those things. Anytime when people begin to look around, they do what Peter did when Jesus looked around. When Peter looked around, he was walking on water, literally walk, walking on water. And, and he had his eyes on Jesus. And when he began to look around, what happened? Peter began to what? He did what? He, he sunk. That's what happens. And so many times the adversary would love to get your eyes off of the prize. He would love to take your gaze from here and put your gaze around here. Because if he can get your gaze around here, then the next thing you know there's going to be a division in the body of Christ. That's really good stuff right there. He says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the what? Blindness of their heart. The blindness of their heart. He's not writing to sinners here, ladies and gentlemen. He's writing to the church. He's writing to church people who being, who being past feeling, verse number 19 now, have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all in cleanness with greediness. He says, but ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And then he says this, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And a lot of times when we say that we put off, we think that's something that we actually do, all right? Actually, us putting off is actually us casting our cares on him. Us putting off is saying, God, I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. That's what putting off is. Putting off is actually repentance, ladies and gentlemen. That's what putting off is. Putting off is a turning from, and not only a turning from something, it's turning to somebody. That's what putting off is, all right? He says that, that ye put off. Go back to verse number t- uh, 22, please. That ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And then he says in verse 23, and be what? Re- be what? renewed in the spirit of your mind. I cannot express right now enough, and I'm not even, this is my text, so I'm not in my notes yet at all, okay? 
I cannot express enough the importance of you having a daily renewing. I'll say it again. I cannot express to you the importance enough of you having a daily renewing, of being renewed in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. That is so very, very important. And you know what I've discovered in talking with people? I've discovered that a lot of times they get these issues in their life and they come to find out they have no daily walk with Jesus Christ. When they're looking around at other people, they have no daily walk with Jesus Christ. There is because the closer I get to Jesus Christ, the more I realize how imperfect and impure I am and the less I can pass judgment on somebody else. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 4 now, and that you put on something now. You put on the new man, which after God is created in what? Righteousness and true holiness. And I know Spencer's doing a series about what's true, but hear me. If you heard him say it Tuesday night, um, uh, if there's a true holiness, then there must be a there must be a false holiness. And just FYI, him and I are not comparing to any notes at all this month. So just just so you realize that, all right. Verse number twenty-five. He says, "Wherefore putting away what lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another." I don't care if you like me or not; we're still members of the same body. And you may not like each other, but you're still members of the same body. He says this in verse number 26. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give what? Place to the, that's a whole other lesson in of itself. Then he says, let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let, verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of what? Edifying, that it may minister what? Oh, grace. Yeah, not holiness, grace. May minister grace unto the hearers. Verse number 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of what? You are literally sealed. I, I, see, that's a hard concept for us Pentecostals really to believe because we think that, that we can literally live for God and fall away from God all in the same day. Live for God and, and we, have this, we have this constant deal of coming back to God and saying, God forgive me, God forgive me, God forgive me. And we don't believe that we're sealed. Hear me, no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. That's the word of God. No man can, the only person that can, can remove you out of the Father's hand is if you end up trying to remove yourself. He says this in verse number 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with you from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another. Here we go. Tenderhearted doing what? Forgiving one another. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now here's something that's perplexed me. And I was up here. I, I, I think I left this seat last night. I know you saw them bring it out, but it was actually still sitting here last night. I left, I left sitting right here at 309 this morning. That's when I walked out of here was at 309, when I got up from right here at 309 this morning. Because I've been so disturbed in my spirit, literally sick to my physical body. It, it, it's been crazy. I even received a text last week, don't let your joy be stolen. And yet, somehow, Jonathan trying to help people, you know how that goes. I received a word just a while ago in that prayer room just moments ago. Just an incredible word about difficulties and troubles and, and, and still, still. I feel like an intercessor standing before, standing in the gap and pleading, God, please, God, help, God, please, God, help, God, change their heart, God, touch their mind, God, open their understanding, God, please, God, help, God. 
and here's something that, 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 that I've realized. Whenever you're a new believer in Christ, you're always about what can I receive? Pastor, teach me, teach me, what can I get? But when you become an older believer in Christ, and I'm an older believer in Christ, if it doesn't go just like I think it should go, I put my defenses up, and I don't embrace it. Instead of me coming and say, Pastor, teach me, what were you saying? Open the Word of God. What's that? I've, already, I've already made up my mind. I've already put a box, this fence around my ideas, my thoughts, and so anything that challenges that, I put up a guard automatically. And then what happens, and here comes the adversary. Because I've got my guard up, now there's a division coming in through the body. Here comes the division. And now I, there's this moment that I don't fit, I don't feel like I belong, and, and that's what takes place. And, it's, and, and what I've, I've said, God, why isn't that the seasoned saints don't come say, Pastor, you, you, you opened that verse or you said something and it really, what, what, what are you teaching? What is the word of God speaking? What are you seeing there? Teach me. Somehow we lose a teachable spirit. It's good teaching right now. Sunday morning, you need to be preaching, Pastor Green. I am. may not be hollering at you, but I'm still preaching right now. This week I was in Battle Creek, Michigan. It was on Tuesday or Thursday morning, one of those mornings, maybe Wednesday morning. The Holy Spirit woke me up through Timothy, Paul's writings to Timothy. And he says this, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle, apt to teach, apt to teach. My prayer this week has been, God, let me not strive. I don't have to contend with you on an idea. I can contend for the faith which is delivered to the saints, but I don't have to attend with, contend with your ideas or your view of, 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 of theology. It's a matter of, of conversation. And the beautiful thing is, Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 3, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. He said we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. And so... Here we stand this morning, and we'll talk about I am holy today. Or for those that want me to use the word preach, I am going to preach I am holy. Communication is a terrifying thing. Standing up and speaking in front of people, it really is a terrifying thing. You get up here, let's trace, trace places and let me sit down there today, and you stand up here, and let's see how it works for you. Building messages is not always the easiest thing to do. I mean, Saturday night comes six day, every seventh day is a Saturday night. Saturday night. Sunday morning's coming, and it's here again. And there are times that I have everything but a point in the message. I'm just telling you the truth. And then I'm critiqued about the message. You didn't say that right, or that offended me, or it beats all out. You, you misspoke, or yeah. Hear me, God chose by the foolishness of preaching and teaching to continue the gospel to this world. If we think that Paul's and Peter's way of preaching was God with three syllables, like God. And there's a time and place for that. Hear me. It, it, it has been said that our approach to preaching should be shaped by our goal of preaching. So every time that I come up here and communicate, sometimes it's with a stool. Sometimes it's, it's, lately it's been with a table because of my laptop. Sometimes it's, with, it's been with, with, a, with a, a podium. You know, it, there's no, no certain wrong way and right way of, of doing it. It was on a Pentecost Sunday here just last year that I did it in a short sleeve shirt and jeans because I was doing a monologue. I was dressed as if I had came back from 2,000 years ago to give you a message. But some didn't hear that message. All they saw with me was in a short sleeve shirt. Honest to God, truth. So, so when you teach homiletics, and I taught homiletics, all right, 
homiletics is about our approach to preaching. And our approach to preaching should be uh, shaped by our goal of preaching. What is the Spirit wanting to accomplish? What, what is the goal as a pastor, as a communicator? What am I wanting to see happen? What is my goal through preaching? And then once you discover that goal, then you begin to adjust your approach. It's kind of like fishing. If I'm going to go bass fishing in the summer and they're down deep, I can throw the banks all day long. But if the fish are down deep, I'm not going to catch them in the shallows. I've got to change my approach. So instead of determining our goal, here's what happened. We just inherited our goal from someone else. Well, this is the way my pastor preached, so this is the way I preach. If you've been around it long enough, you can see characteristics of men, of preachers. You know who they imitate and who they want to sound like. I mean, I used to say, I want this one's anointing, this one's vocabulary, this one's passion, this one's ability to know when to strike. And yeah, I don't need any of that. I needed to be me. That's what, I, that's what I needed. But I needed to determine my goal and not just inherit someone else's goal. And there's two goals, and I've shared this. There's two goals. Number one is teach the Bible to people. That means the Bible comes before people. That means my love for God is greater than my love for you. It requires no application, no visuals, no creativity. Or I, I can teach people the Bible, and that's where I become more audience-driven. To be honest with you, that's my, I really am a more teach people the Bible type of guy. The passion of that guy is they want the audience to, to know their Bible. And they have great personality, humor. I mean, if you're a note taker, you love this kind of preacher. You don't want them to stop. It's just deep. It's just rich. Just keep on going. They can take one verse, spend six weeks on it, which I really can't do that. But they can and never repeat themselves. And the goal is that when I'm done, I want people to know these scriptures. But I'm not so sure, and I've said this before, I'm not sure these are the right goals. I don't want to settle for just teaching the Bible to people. And I don't want to settle just for teaching people the Bible. The problem with Christianity that I see it is not that people don't know the Bible. It's not between the believers and the unbelievers. The problem that I see in Christianity that caused the most problem is probably the people who probably know the most Bible. You try to do something new and contemporary and they're like, we can't do that. Don't change. No, don't remove the old landmarks that our father said. And they take a verse from the Old Testament that talks about stealing, stealing your neighbor's land. And they want to take it out of context and twist it in such a way. And I, I see that as perverting the gospel of Christ personally. They are not just the gospel, but perverting scripture, twisting scripture. They want to take that verse, remove not the old landmarks which our fathers have set. When it talks about land, and they want to move that in such a way. Churches don't split to fit their beliefs of their forefathers. Churches don't split because people don't know the Bible. Churches split because people aren't applying the Bible. People don't leave the church because they don't know the Bible. People leave the church because they're not applying the Bible. Yeah. And the problem with the church in America is not that we don't know enough Bible. It is actually our lack of balanced application of the Bible. That's our problem. You see, if spiritual maturity was synonymous with the Bible knowledge, then just teaching the Bible would be to people or, or, or teaching people the Bible would be just fine. Who knew the Old Testament better, better than anybody? The Pharisees. Who is responsible for crucifying Jesus Christ? The Pharisees. Can you imagine what eternity, eternity would be like for them? And they, they crucified him. Yet they knew all the scriptures about his coming, yet they didn't recognize that he was here. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 states, we know that we all possess knowledge. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. You see, let me ask you a question. Is it easier to know something 
or is it easier to love somebody? Is it easier to know something or easier to love somebody? The answer is it's easier to know something because loving somebody can be difficult. Spiritual maturity is not synonymous with Bible knowledge. But hear me, spiritual maturity is synonymous with spiritual applications of that Bible knowledge. Spiritual maturity is always gauged by application. You're not spiritually mature because you know something. You're spiritually mature because how, what you do and how you apply with what you know. James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, who was probably actually named Jacob, wrote in James chapter 1, verse 22 to 26, he said, do not merely listen to words and, and, dis, and so deceive yourselves. He says, do what it says. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. How many of you looked in the mirror this morning? Would you raise your hand? That explains why some of you look the way you look. You, you didn't look in the mirror. Now let's ask this question again because I don't want there to be any liars in the house of God. How many of you looked in the mirror this morning? Let's, let's see. Now we got more hands going up. Okay. I feel better about that. James is talking about the person who, who takes notes and doesn't do anything with it. James is talking about the person who hears a message and doesn't do anything with it. James is talking about the person who reads the Bible and doesn't do anything with it. The person that doesn't allow themselves to be changed by the word in the Bible. You see, you don't get credit for looking in the mirror every morning and simply thinking that that's all I have to do is look in the mirror. And neither do you get credit by just having a Bible or knowing a Bible and think, well, I, I've done, or just reading your Bible and think, I've done my Christian, my Christian duty. He says in verse 25, but whosoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard but doing it, they will bless in what they do. Hear me. There is no blessing for knowledge. You can memorize all the scriptures about marriage and have a horrible marriage. You can memorize all the scriptures about raising kids and parenting and have a hor horrible relationship with your kids. It's not all in the knowing, but it's in the doing. And spiritual maturity is in the doing. It's not about all that you know. It's about what you do with what you know. Amen. And verse 26 says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is what? Let me just say it this way. I don't care how you live. You cannot drink, smoke, cuss, chew, or go with girls that do. I think that's how the old way they would say it. Doesn't matter what you abstain from. If you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, your religion, everything that you're not doing is literally worthless. Therefore, the approach that I take to communication should be about showing and training and teaching how to do what the Bible says to do. And hear me, I'm not allowed to add one thing to this thing or take away one thing from this thing. I'm not allowed to, to take away or add to, and neither are you. And when I stand before God, and when I give an account and stand before God for what I said and what I taught, I can promise you God's not going to look at me and say, well, you added this to it, or you took this away from it. I'm not against knowing, but I am against knowing without doing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I speak 
in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy and, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and, and I have faith that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. He said, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may, may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Perhaps the greatest threat to our church's witness, to our witness, is one of our own making. And it's an image problem. Many outside the church view Christians hypocritical. Wouldn't you agree with that? Would you agree with that? Yeah. Many outside the church view Christians as hypocritical. Maybe because they are unchristian. These Christians are unchristian in their attitudes and, a- and actions. They're bigoted, homophobic, materialistic, judgmental. Maybe even self-serving. You see, the church's image problem doesn't bode well for the church's future. In fact, data suggests that Christianity is declining in North America. And the reason for this discouraging state of affairs are complex. And there's not just a simple cookie-cutter fix. You see, in our increasingly post-Christian culture in America, our post-Christian culture in America, confusion about what it means to be real abounds. And where there's a distrust of organized religion, it's reached an all-time high, ladies and gentlemen. If, if there's ever a moment where the church needs to be balanced, it's right now. And while Christians, even Christians, seem confused about what it means to be real, Jesus was not. You see, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus said this. He said, thus by their fruit you will recognize them. You will know them by their, what? Fruit. You, you know you're real if you bear fruit. Fruit is the telltale sign of authentic, real faith because fruit does not lie. Luke chapter 6, verse, 34, verse 43, Jesus said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. He says, each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick Figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Hear me. Jesus doesn't equate professing faith with possessing faith as we often do. I'll say that again. Jesus doesn't equate professing faith with possessing faith as we often do. We profess faith and we profess Christianity and we think because we profess it, that means we possess it. Instead, Jesus warns his disciple that the only one thing matters, and that one thing is bearing fruit. Paul declares this in, in Galatians 5, verse 22. And by the way, Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples if you have what? Love one for another. Paul declares in Galatians 5, 22, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, or, uh, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Christians should be concerned about the fruit that they are producing. If I am not producing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control, then that is a barometer, a gauge to me to realize that I may not be really who I think I am. That's how you know someone's a Christian. That's how you know. That's what holiness looks like. I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. The religious mindset that I had and some of you had 
and some of you may still have, is we were all about making a point, but we weren't really about making a difference. Telling you or trying to convince you uh, uh, you're wrong is different from me equipping you to do what's right. And I said it last week, it's fun to make a point with a bunch of people that already agree with you, which is what happens in a lot of environments. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus came and spoke today, and he was spoke to you like he spoke to the seven churches in Revelation, would you get offended and leave? If Paul came today and spoke to you like he spoke to the church in Galatia and Ephesians and Romans and Philippi and Thessalonica, would you get offended and leave? Think about it. But here's the problem with American culture of Christianity. The pastor has to make you feel good. And he has to agree with you. And if he doesn't agree with you and he crosses your theology, then I can't be there. i got to go somewhere else. Last week we spoke about, about what being separate actually was. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17, uh, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We discovered that we are to be separate, separate from the world. You see, I am a new creature in Christ and so are you. Old things pass away. Everything else becomes brand new. But this does not mean that I don't live in the world in 2020. When I got the Holy Ghost, I didn't go straight to heaven. Matter of fact, when I got the Holy Ghost, I didn't lose my flesh and my flesh nature. I had to crucify my flesh with its affections and lust, and so do you. But I live in the year 2020. This does not mean that if the world has something, that then we as spirit-filled believers in Christ should not have it. There may be some things in the world that I don't participate in, but it's because of a principle in Scripture. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to the 1800s and then the 1900s. The holiness movement really came out of the Methodist movement. The Methodist church was the holy church starting off. Now some of you don't even think the Methodists are holy. I didn't say me, I said some of you. You look at different denominations, where they came from, how they originated. But one of the things, one of the things that, that, that came into our society was TV. What, 1940s or 50s television came, in, came into existence, created something along those lines, right? I mean, anybody here have the first original TV? No. Matter of fact, when, when I was raised, I, I heard it preached, don't have a TV. And hear me, I agree with the principles of, of things that you watch. I want you to understand that. And I, I understand why they preached against the box itself. They said, don't have a TV. How many was raised, or you heard, don't, don't have a TV? Would you raise your hands? I just want to see how many don't have a TV. All right. Now, just those that heard that, you heard that taught and preached, you raised your hands, heard it preached that way. How many of you have a TV right now? I think it just made my point. All right, how many have a cell phone? All right, you got a TV. So you see, it wasn't the box that's wrong. It's not the device that's wrong. You see, I never could understood. You no, know, we had eight millimeters growing up when I was a kid. I mean, the first time I saw Star Wars was on an eight millimeter. Eight, you know those reels, eight millimeter movie reels. Remember what I'm talking about? But then VHS came out. 
And I didn't understand why I could not watch Star Wars on VHS, but I could watch it on 8mm. It didn't make any sense to me. And I understand sometimes a pastor would draw a line, and I, I, can, respect, I can respect that. That's fine. But him, when I draw my lines, I am being very clear why I draw my lines when it comes to the Word of God. Because I am not going to add to or take away from me, myself. How many of you actually have a VHS now? Like nobody. I think there's one in Victoria's office, to be honest with you. No. Matter of fact, the, the movies that you watch now, you don't even watch on DVDs. You stream. Anyway, my point is this. You have a TV. Something changed. What changed? Not, you begin to understand that the TV itself isn't wrong. It's the knowledge or what you watch on it that could be wrong. Correct? And so you live by the principle. The principle. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 2, and I wish I had time to read this entire chapter, and I may at the end. But he says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me pause back, back then. Back in the day, for those that didn't have TV that have it now, you heard that you were being separate by not having a TV. Right? So are you no longer separate? Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and, and perfect will of God. Hear me, my thoughts, my actions, my speech are all to be transformed. However, today I want to focus on the topic, I am holy. I love music. I mean, I, I love music. I love good Christian music. And to be honest with you, I love non-Christian music. Don't stone me. I was driving with Victoria the other day and I was on on a playlist, just on Spotify, and it was like every great country song of the 90s. I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I was singing to Victoria, I can love you like that. I can make you my world. She was like, quit, stop. I swear. Don't even get me going, right? Yeah, so... I love, I love music. Now take those old records off the shelf. I mean, when I make a birdie, when I play golf, I literally sing, rock and robin. Rock and robin. I mean, I can go all across genre. I can. I don't give myself to that stuff anymore because you can have too much of a, of, a, of a good thing becomes a bad thing, right? Yeah. But I love music. My favorite is praise and worship music. I can get caught up in praise and worship music. Music is a gift from God that captures and carries that which cannot be adequately expressed by words alone. Plato said music gives wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and life to everything. Music set forth what is important to us. Even in quizzing, we literally have, have the verses put to music to help the kids learn. Music is powerful. So do, do, do you know what the first recorded song in the Bible, what it was about? If you're a music lover, do you know what the first recorded song in the Bible was about? I'll give you a hint. The, the last recorded song in the Bible is about the same thing. 
The first recorded song in Scripture appears in Exodus chapter 15. And the last song can be found in Revelation chapter number 15. And both have as their shared focus, ready for this, the holiness of God. After God's demolished any notion that Egypt's false gods were anything other than the projections of the men and who worshipped them. And after God delivered over a million Israeli slaves from, from the grip of Egypt through ten incredible plagues and, and, and a parted Red Sea, Moses led the whole nation in a song of celebrating God's holiness. One verse captures the, the, the gist of the entire song in Exodus 15, verse 11, I believe it is. It says, it says, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? When the 90-year-old apostle John was granted by God to, to look into the future, he saw a moment when, when the final outpouring of the wrath of God was about to take place and, and gathered in heaven were those whose, whose faith and allegiance to God in, the, in defiance of the rule of the Antichrist had cost them their lives. And John tells us in Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, it says, And they sang the song of God's servant Moses. Revelation 15, verse 3 on the screen, please. And they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and aspiring, marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Trust and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. Verse 4, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art holy. You're holy. In between Exodus 15 and Revelation 15, God's holiness comes up in conversation over and over again. Holy is more, used more often as a prefix to God's name than any other adjective. Two men in Scripture who were permitted to sing to the throne room of heaven Write about it, Isaiah and John. They, 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 they both reported for hearing one continuous refrain spoken day and night. And that refrain is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the only thing said about God in this fashion. None of his other attributes are, are repeated three times. We don't hear love, love, love is God or, or mercy, mercy, mercy is God or, or grace, grace. No, we don't hear that. If you think God is concerned with his holiness in the Old Testament, consider the simple fact that holy is mentioned 431 times, not counting the word holiness. The Hebrew word for holy means apartness, sacredness, or separateness, showing that God is altogether holy, sacred, set apart, or separate from his creation. The idea is that God is totally different from us. Hear me, God is totally different from us, for he is a holy God. He's set apart. The Greek word for holy or holiness means much the same thing that the Old Testament word does. It means pure, morally blameless, or set apart, as in set apart for holy use, which is what the saints of God have been called to. We've been called to be set apart for holy use. The word holy is found in the New Testament 180 times. And if you use the word holiness, then it's almost 200 times that holy or holiness is used. It is very obvious, ladies and gentlemen, from the scriptures that holiness is important to God and that we should regard him as holy. So how is holy used in context? It is used much the same way as it is used in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. You see, the holiness of God 
It's one of the most difficult attributes of God to try to explain. It's like trying to describe the Shekinah glory cloud in a physical way. That literally accompanies, accompanies the presence of God. We understand God's attributes of love, mercy, and grace. We understand that because we've experienced love, mercy, and grace. But holiness is an attribute of God, ladies and gentlemen, that is not shared with humans. Although a person who repents, trusts in Jesus Christ, has Jesus' own righteousness accredited to their own account. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But that is not the same as having inherent holiness. You don't have inherent holiness, and neither do I. Even when you got the Holy Ghost, you didn't automatically become, get inherent holiness. Oh, you became holy, justified, but not because of yourself. God is so holy, the Bible says in Exodus, that no one can even look at him and live. It would be like be looking at the sun and going blind as a result, but God's holiness and, and being in his presence will literally do more than that. And we have this command to be holy. I am holy. And the reason why I say I am holy, and I hate even to say I am holy, because he said, be ye holy, for I am holy. The I am holy is actually the I am Jesus Christ. Jonathan is nowhere close to being holy. The Bible teaches us from the Old Testament, the New Testament, both, that God is holy. And how do we as fallen creatures, with our fallen nature, how can we be anything but unholy? You see, part of that growth toward holiness is not being conformed to this world. It's an ongoing lifetime process called sanctification or to be set apart holy for the master's use. The apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16, he says, as obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you what do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. He goes on to say in verse number 5 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, you yourselves, he said, you're like living stones, are being built in a spiritual house to a holy priesthood. That's what's going on. You're being built into a, a, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Peter appears to be quoting the Old Testament in Leviticus 11 where he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And since we are called to be holy as God is holy, although it's not to the same extent, of course, we should, 1 Peter 2 verse 1, ready for this? Put away, put away all malice and guile, deceit, hypocrisies, envies, and all evil speakings. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, says the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a what peculiar people. Yet when it comes to the word peculiar people, that word peculiar actually means purchased. You are a purchased people. I'm not peculiar because of what I look like on the outside. I'm peculiar because I am purchased. By the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm peculiar. I should show forth the praise of him who has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, so we should live a life of holiness at least as much as possible. So I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 
And I'll start bringing this to a close here in about 30 minutes. I'm going to get through this today. I want to go through this. Because when I talk about I am separate, 2 Corinthians 2, 16, 6, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 17, 18. Verse, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 is the very next verse. And it's really a part of the same conversation. He says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The Amplified says, therefore, since these great promises are ours, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates and defiles body and spirit and bring our consecration to completeness in the reverential fear of, of God. You see, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. If I read it just on surface, I think that there's things that I do to make myself holy. And that's not the case. I'm going to break this verse down for you today. This is Paul's natural conclusion to what we read last Sunday. The commitment to come out among them and be separate is coupled with the promise in verse 18 of chapter 6. He said, I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You'll be my, father, my sons and daughters. We are to separate ourselves from, from worldly thinking, worldly actions, or acting. But when he gets to 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. There is a cleansing that God alone does in our lives. But there is a cleansing that God does in cooperation with us. Watch this. Paul writes about a cleansing that isn't just something that God does for us as we just sit by passively. We're not cleansed because he died on the cross and bam, we're cleansed. There is a main aspect of cleansing that comes to us as we trust in Jesus Christ and the work, we put our faith in the work of the cross, the work of his resurrection. The work of cleansing is really God's work in us and it's not our work. I'll prove it. John writes in 1 John 1 verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, that is the only cooperation that we have to do for cleansing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only actual work that I do for cleansing is me acknowledging and confessing that I am a sinner and I need cleansing. That's it. But there is also another part of cleansing. Oh, I love it. You find it in Ephesians 5, and I don't even have that in my notes. Talking about the church, he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That when I get into relation, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, intimacy with him, God begins to purify my heart and my eyes and my ears and my hands of what's forbidden and what it tends to increase into, that brings action into all the evil propensities because you have a propensity to sin, ladies and gentlemen. You are bent towards sin. That's the truth. There's a cleansing that comes and I don't behave the same way. I'll get to that in just a moment. Let me just take it to my notes. He says, from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. You see, we, we think of purity before the Lord only in terms of cleansing from all filthiness of the flesh. But there's also a filthiness of the spirit 
to cleanse ourselves from. And sometimes it is easier to deal with the filthiness of the flesh than it is the filthiness of the spirit. I'm preaching right now. During Jesus' earthly ministry, those who were stained by the filthiness of the flesh, we talked about, talked about it last week, the tax collectors, the, the sinners, they found it easy to come to Jesus. But those who were stained by the filthiness of the spirit, such as the scribes and Pharisees, found it very hard to come to Jesus. Our pride, our legalism, our self-focus, our self-righteousness, our bitterness, our hatred can all be far worse to deal with than the more obvious sins of the flesh. And there is a defilement of the spirit which is independent of the defilement of the flesh. And the spirit can be defiled many, many ways. And I sometimes think that the sins of the spirit are more deadly than the sins of the flesh. I want to say something very kindly here. It blows my mind at the hypocrisy of people who want to point out something that somebody else is doing that they disagree with when they've got a major moral issue in their life or they had a major moral issue in their life. And let me just be clear. There are people who have served on this platform, maybe who even serve on this platform now, I don't know. There are people who have served in, in teaching positions in the past who have had, and, and, and we don't have any teachers right now, so we're good to say that right now, right? Who have had adulterous affairs caught in the act of fornication. And not one time have I ever as pastor asked them to quit serving on this platform or I've taken them out of, out of a Sunday school room teaching. Not one time. Not one time. Because my view is, if God forgives them and puts it under the blood, and they're justified at that moment as if it never happened, and they make a commitment to live to walk away from that, who am I to say, now you need to sit down for six months and prove yourself? And when you're the pastor, you can pastor your way you want to pastor. But as for me, I'll pastor the way I pastor but not one time. I have had people say, Pastor Green, I, I want to sit down for a series for a while. And by all means, I want to heal. I want to work on this. I've let them sit down. But not one time have I ever asked anyone to step down. Not one time. And what's amazing is, if I was to ask people to step down from serving, first of all, it has to be me. I believe the Apostle Paul put it this way. You look at Paul's life, and I wish I could remember this perfectly, and I can't. But you look at Paul, he's a sinner saved by the grace of God. But it's at the end of when he writes to Timothy, he says, I am the chiefest of sinners. It's amazing that as Paul grew, grew closer to Jesus Christ and his relationship, his view of himself as a sinner grew greater as well. He became the chiefest of sinners. It's kind of like when Jesus caught the woman in the act of adultery. He said, "Where who, he that has sinned, let him cast the first stone. And before you be, pick up a stone and begin to somebody, stone somebody else, and before I pick up a stone and begin to stone somebody else, I've got to realize if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ, so goes I. And the Bible says, and the way you give mercy and grace, that's the same way you're going to receive mercy 
and grace. The way you've been given mercy and grace, that's the way you're going to get mercy and grace. As far as I'm concerned, I want to stockpile mercy and grace for myself because I know there's going to come a day where I am going to need the mercy and grace of Almighty God and of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The hypocrisy that blows me away is when people say, well, do you know that one did this? And I have to say, the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle, apt to teach. The servant of the Lord must not be strive but be apt to teach. He's got to be gentle. Put a guard in my mouth, Jonathan. And I want to say, yeah. And you? Let's talk about you. And what really gets me is we're all about people, about what they do, what they look like. But we're never concerned about the gossip and tongue. We're not concerned about the division that we're causing in the body. You see, if you share it with a brother or sister in Christ, you're nothing but a gossip. Well, did you see? Well, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can be a part of that. And I sometimes think that sins of the spirit are more deadly than the sins of the flesh. When we have sins of the flesh, we're easy. We're quick to repent over. The sins of the spirit were quick to justify. Charles Spurgeon once stated, I wish we were more concerned about cleansing ourselves from the filthiness of the spirit. I am inclined to think that, there is, that some men heedlessly, heedlessly pollute their spirits, and I mean that they do it willfully. Cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And then he says this, and I'll close in a moment. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul isn't writing about some state of sinless perfection. Hear me, you cannot live sinless. You can't. The word perfection here, perfecting, has the idea of completeness or wholeness or maturity. In a, instead of a state of sinless perfection, Paul writes about maturity, completeness, holiness. It isn't enough to only clean ourselves from all filthiness, but even the Christian life is not only getting rid of things in my life, confessing those things, turning from those things, but it's about me continually doing it and becoming good. I'm going to be doing good works. I shared it last Sunday. Do good works. I turn on a light. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city, a city on the hill that cannot be hid. Therefore, go do good works. Let men see your good works. We must take care that we cleanse ourselves and not be concerned ourselves with cleaning other people. And most of the time, we are more concerned with the holiness of others than we are with our own holiness. And it's very easy to find out other people's faults. It's very easy to point out somebody else's failures. It's very easy to look at their shortcomings. And it's very difficult for me to overlook somebody else's faults. It's very difficult for me to overlook somebody's, oh yeah, to overlook their shortcomings. You see, holiness is not the way to Jesus. You don't get to Jesus by getting holy. That's a lie from the pit of hell. I want to debunk that. I don't get to Jesus by, by, by getting holy. No. Jesus is the way to holiness. The way I get to holiness is by Jesus. 
we can't get holy. There's not one thing that you can do to be holy. You can't get holy. You can only confess your sin and say, God, cleanse me of my sin. Forgive me of my sin. I turn from my sin. That's all you can do. And he gives you his justification. He gives you his righteousness. He takes off your unrighteousness and he puts on the garment of his righteousness. Your righteousness is as filthy, dirty, rotten rags. We're not holy by nature. We're wicked by nature. We're evil by nature. And even being born again, I still have my fleshly nature. And the beautiful thing about grace, I'll say it this way, grace that doesn't lead to holiness isn't grace at all. You see, God gives me grace and allows me to grow in grace and in knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful. When I realize God gives me grace over with my anger, with my envies, with my, we, list, we had a whole list of them today. My malice, my jealousy, God gives me God gives me, even when I mess up and say the wrong thing, God still gives me grace. But that grace doesn't give me a license to keep on having anger, to keep on being jealous, to keep on gossiping, to keep, no, grace, it, grace is not a license to do that. Grace that doesn't lead to holiness isn't grace at all. But grace teaches, Titus tells us, grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Psalms 24 verse 3. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his what? Holy place. Who can do this? You ready? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not set his mind on what is false. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive, verse 5, the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of their salvation. But what I've come to realize is that my hands aren't clean. And there's times my heart isn't pure. Sometimes I offer up my time and my energy to be entertained by things that I know are based on lies. Sometimes my life is not holy. My days are riddled with sin. My heart is attracted to sin. My mind tends to justify sin. I am so bent toward sin. I'm caught red-handed, and so are you. Our sin not only makes us totally incompatible with a holy, holy, holy God. But it literally makes us guilty of treason because we've broken his law and defied his commands and fallen short of his glory and, and trespassed. We missed the bullseye of perfection. Oh, we have. And how can a holy God who must just sin keep his integrity while pronouncing Guilty sinners like me and you, not guilty. How does he do that? 
Peter tells us, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also has suffered once. He's once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust, or, or the righteous for the unrighteous. That's what just and for the unjust is. The righteous for the, for the unrighteous. That he might bring us, bring us, bring you to God. Being put to death in the fleshly realm, but quickened by the spiritual realm. And what his holiness demanded, what his holiness demanded, ready for this? His grace provided. What his holiness demanded, his grace provided. Be ye holy. He said, for I am holy. Holy. On behalf of everyone here at The Anchor, we want to thank you for listening. Okay, so now that you've listened to this, there should be a burden lifted from you. There should be freedom and liberty. The passion and emotion displayed by Pastor Green through this message is not to discourage you from obtaining holiness but to build you up and to strip away the burden of falling short each and every day. Please share this podcast with your friends and join us at 1040 a.m. Sundays and 655 p.m. on Tuesday nights in service here at The Anchor or via Facebook Livestream and Livestream.com. We look forward to seeing you on the stream. We are also working on a YouTube live stream, so look forward to that in the future. Also, thank you so very much for your continued financial support by giving online. We couldn't maintain our services without you. One last thing. If you need prayer, please reach out to us. We are more than happy to pray with you. And until then, see you next time.